0: the series called The Almost. And um, we, we've, been, we've been talking about the world that might have been and still is to be. So far, we've looked at a miracle of nature and a miracle of exorcism. We saw that last week. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at a miracle of healing. But that word almost, it's a funny word, right? Because a lot of us spend our lives thinking about the almost that was in our life, kind of like Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, if you remember. Um, Yeah, we kind of live our lives in that almost. Were you almost something in your life? I mean, did you think you were going to be a dancer and you ended up a bank teller? Did you think you would be a musician and you became a doctor to the disappointment of all your family and friends? Uh, Did you spend your time almost becoming a lawyer but became a a stay-at-home dad instead? Did you almost play professional sports? Some of us may have spent our time almost trying to be a rock star for a long time in their lives. Some of us may have done that. The problem with the almost is that many people get stuck in the almost of their lives the glory days that kind of never became something, the missed chances, the close but no cigar kind of moments. that's not exactly what we mean, because when we talk about the almost, we're kind of recapturing that language. The almost is this life that we almost got to live, but because of sin, we weren't able to. But that doesn't mean that the almost doesn't exist. The almost is alive and well in Jesus. And sometimes we have moments of clarity. Sometimes we see it. And we see it most profoundly through the miracles of Jesus, which is why we're doing this series. And today's miracle of healing is no less miraculous, but it does something interesting. It answers some questions about theodicy. That's right, I know. I use SAT words sometimes, and you may not know what they mean. So let me explain to you what theodicy is. Simply put, it is the the defense of God in the midst of suffering. So if anyone has ever asked you the question, how can God be good when there are so many people suffering in the world, that is a question of theodicy. And the answer that you give is a theodicy, a theological understanding of how there can be a good God. How do we defend God in the midst of so much suffering in the world? here's the thing when you figured out your idea of theodicy there's there's great things about that and there's some bad things about that because sometimes when you when you understand where suffering is supposed to fit in the world you become less sensitive to that suffering because you know where it fits and so that's the way it's supposed to be So that's what we're going to deal with as we jump into John chapter 9, verses 1 through I think 13, we're also going to jump to 25, um, and we'll be reading from the New Living Translation as you know. It begins like this, as Jesus was walking along, but this is not really, we don't know, this is not necessarily a connection to the previous text, it's just sort of like a, a literary idiom almost, like if you ever read a Peanuts comic strip and every time Snoopy was about to write he would say it's a dark and stormy night, if you remember that. Man, I used a Peanuts reference again sometime earlier this week, and the room was kind of like, hmm, so I guess you guys don't. All right, I won't use it again. That's it. Charles Schultz, off. No more Snoopy references. Um. Anyway, so as Jesus, it was kind of like, hey, he's walking along. Like he started another bit of the story right here because remember, it's always important to understand context. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now, there was certainly a lot of blindness in the first century. There wasn't as much blindness from birth. So he mentions it because there's something specific about it and it seemed to be a little bit of an anomaly, just a little bit. Oh, you guys are opening your study guides and you're taking notes? Come on. You know, that makes me so happy. That is, that's beautiful. You get aced. <laughs> I'm just preaching to you guys. You're the only ones listening. <laughs> So, so so, this idea of being blind from birth is interesting. Now, what we're about to see is that the, the disciples had a very particular theodicy. They understood where suffering came from. They understood why it was there. And so they asked this question out of their particular worldview, their particular theology. They asked this question, Rabbi, they said, which is, you know, a term of endearment. It's a term of respect. It's like when my, my students call me professor. Now, I'm not a professor. To be a professor in a university, you have to be like an assistant professor and then an associate professor and you have to publish all this stuff. However, when you come in as an adjunct professor, you're just a professor. I don't know why we get to skip all that stuff. And so they come in and they're like, professor? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) And I wish I had like a pipe and a tweed jacket. I wouldn't smoke the pipe, it just feels like you need one (laughs) when someone calls you professor. So he said, uh, Rabbi, professor, Rabbi, his disciples, why was this man born blind? And then they answered the question from their own theology, from their own worldview, from their own idea of what's happening. Was it because his own sin or his parents' sin? They asked this kind of deeply theological question, but they didn't ask it like a deeply, like answer this theology. They knew the theology. So they said, so who sinned? Was Was it the man? Which... If he's born from blind, how how that's not fair. If it, if it was the man or if it was his parents. And of course, you remember, a theodicy is the defense of God in the midst of suffering. The disciples had a particular theodicy, and it comes from Deuteronomy 5.9. Now, it's not great, but it's what they believed in. And Deuteronomy 5.9 says this. You've, you're probably familiar with it. It says, you must not bow down to them or worship them. We're talking about idols at this point. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate any of your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. this is the point point. the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. which is rough that's a rough text. Now, we have, we have a tendency to look at that text and talk about family systems and talk about how the sin of a father, you know, addiction or abuse, and it does, you know, those family systems, it's hard to get out of those family systems. That's, that's not how they viewed it, though. They viewed that if, like, grandpa does something, you're still in trouble. And so that's how they asked that. They understood the tradition and therefore had a place for suffering in their worldview, And that's why the question was so simple. It was a pretty simple question they asked. They didn't say, why is this man suffering? They said, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him? And you see, this is the reason why they could ask that question. They believed in the binary. They believed in the ones and the zeros, right? There's only two options, essentially. If you sin and then you suffer, that's easy. But the problem is Jesus had this pendent for the third way, Jesus never answered questions in ways that could fit into a binary, that could fit into a one or a zero. He always answered the questions in a way that was a little bit, I mean, what is a third way? The third way is a way of Jesus that not only compromises the idea of the binary, but it gives a response that is inarguable. And man, I wish I could do the third way more often. I have to tell you. Because we have bought into the binary, friends, especially us right now here in North America, certainly in our politics, we've bought into the binary, us and them, liberal, conservative. Within the church, we've bought into the binary, right? Progressive or conservative. We have bought into this binary, and, and, and you know, it's not of God. Because every time somebody tried to categorize someone, Jesus blew away the category. How is it that we as Christians can buy into the binary that the world is giving us? It means that we're not paying attention to Jesus anymore. It means that we're not paying attention to the way he thinks. Now, I know some of you are like, you know, easy man. But but we're in an election year, both for the church and for, you know, America. And, and it's fascinating to me. Last time we went through this and I would preach, I'd be out in the tent and somebody would come up and be like, mm, I know what you're all about. You're a conservative. Oh, okay. Because I try and never answer those questions. Um, and then they'd leave and then somebody would walk up and be like, mm, I know what you're all about. You're a liberal. And I was like, hey, nobody knows. See, because here's the problem. I don't believe in those things. I don't believe in those things. I don't believe in those categories because I don't see categories in Jesus. Maybe we should be looking for the third way more often because if not, we as Christians just fall into the same categories that the world gives us, and we assume they're okay. Jesus, in this text, as he was presented with the binary, said, well, well, this is what he said. He said it wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now, let's take a moment, because that sounds pretty bad, right? So God made this happen to this man, made him blind for 30 years to glorify himself. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. Rather than give them the reason for the disability, Jesus gave them the purpose that can come out of it. While God is never the author of suffering, he can see its purpose. And, And here's the thing, we could discuss the varying arguments of theodicy for a long time. Just so you know, I happen to teach a class at Azusa Pacific University. We spend seven hours on suffering. Seven hours. So did you bring a snack? (laughs) I'm not obviously going to do that today, but if you want to read something that is really helpful in understanding the different arguments of theodicy, there's about nine or ten of them, um, and certainly, you know, variations of each. If if you want to read a book that is really helpful with this, I would suggest reading Dr. Richard Rice's book entitled Suffering and the Search for Meaning. It's a great book. You can get it on Kindle. And it will, it will help elucidate all those different um, arguments for theodicy, all those different the- theodicy arguments that are out there. And it's, it's really good. I'm not going to do all that today. But I will say this. Jesus gave them a much more productive way of thinking. You see, because their question was full of judgment, who sinned? And his answer was full of hope and continued on with a sense of urgency. So he says, listen, n- neither one of them sinned. This is so that the glory of God may be seen. And then he says, and it's not a new sentence, it's not a new thought, it's within the same paragraph, I should say is a new sentence, but within a, a new para, a same paragraph, he says we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. He's talking about how we alleviate the suffering. The night is coming and then... No one can work. You see, he realized he could be talking about the, the the causality of this suffering forever as it is a complicated topic. However, he pushed on them the urgency of actually doing something about suffering rather than simply having good thoughts about suffering. Did you notice that the disciples weren't interested in healing the man? Because if they had cared, what they would have said when they walked up is, Jesus, we got one. Like, do you? I don't know how, what he did with his hands. I mean, we learn later in this story. But um, they, they didn't say, Jesus, there's a blind man. we got to heal him. They said, Jesus, who sinned? They were more concerned about the causality of the suffering than they were about the purpose or alleviating the suffering. And let me tell you, if you're suffering, after a while you don't care the cause. You just want it to stop. And that's the most Christian thing you can do, by the way. Rather than trying to find a reason for suffering, Jesus gives a reason to alleviate it. He gives them a sense of urgency. He says, listen, we got to do the work while it's daylight. We got to do the work that God has given us. We've got to fix this. Why? Because I am here in the world. While I am here in the world, I am the light of the world, he says. And listen, if you're a healthcare professional, you know what it's like to be part of a healing process in someone's life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Some of you, your whole life, you go into, you go into to the work of therapy for people so that they can simply get better. And many of us in other industries as well, we get an opportunity to help solve people's problems that causes suffering in their lives. And when we do that, we know we are doing the work of God. And so this is what he says to them. He basically is saying, listen, you're so concerned about judgment. How about a little justice? You're so concerned about You know, the causality of man, why don't we worry a little more about the power of God through me? So then he does something that he absolutely did not need to do, and you know this part of the story. He spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Now let's take for a moment, let's look at the reality of that, shall we? Remember we talked about the pigs, 2,000 pigs in a lake, floating in a lake? How much saliva do you need to make mud? I know that's gross, but it's in the Bible. So he, he made mud and he puts it on over the blind man's eyes. Now, this would never have worked with a lame man because he would have seen it coming. And he would have been like, hey, hey, that's gross. The blind man, he kind of took advantage. <laughs> the guy must be like, what are you doing? I don't know. He didn't need to do it. But he didn't need the metaphor. You see, Jesus is a guy who could go um, to the winds and the waves, peace peace be still, and they did it. Um, He's walking through a crowd and a woman reaches out and grabs his robe and she's healed. He didn't need to do this. But sometimes Jesus likes to work in spectacle and metaphor. And so he gets down in the dirt and he makes the mud and he puts it on the man, and I think he uses this metaphor to show them that he was willing to get down in the dirt for someone, and he was willing to touch the unclean. So the only question I got to ask you right now is this. When was the last time you got your hands dirty helping someone? I mean, really, got your hands dirty. And, and we all have different relationships with dirt, right? Some of us, like I, I, look, at, I look at Mike Rhinus's boys, And Ollie, the older one, that kid is always, like, well-kempt. Like, he's, he's, he's a, these, both of these boys are beautiful. But I think his second son wants to eat the earth. (laughs) Mav, man, whenever I see Maverick, Maverick, if they went on a walk, Maverick came back with half the dirt from the trail on his face, in his ears, and some of it in his mouth. Like that kid loves dirt. My kids were the same way. Jacob Jacob was fine with the dirt. Isaac said he didn't want to ever go to the beach ever again when he was three. And I was like, why? And I thought it was the water. Maybe he's afraid of the water. He's like, there's sand there. (laughs) That's the definition of the beach, man. He's like, I'm not interested anymore right? But when was the last time you got your hands dirty? When was the last time? And listen, like some of you are incredible supporters of the outreach work that we do and, and, the, and the justice work that we do, the mercy work and compassion work that we do, and you write checks for it, and great. But if you haven't been on a Thursday night to help serve food, to move tables, to actually work in the clinic, if you haven't been there, you need to go. It's time to get dirty. Jesus did not need to get dirty, but he did for a particular reason so that he could help people recognize that sometimes you have to be the one who gets dirty to help heal. Sometimes it's got to be you. And that goes along with the urgency that he was talking about. So then he tells this guy, he says, listen, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which of course means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seen. Pretty simple. And I think the reason why he told the man to go do something, which again, didn't need to happen. There's no reason the man, well, actually, after the mud in his eye, he definitely did need to go wash. But there's no theological or power reason that the man had to do it, other than if you notice, God oftentimes wants to show the partnership of his work with the people that he's working on. Right? Right? That's why we have spiritual discipline, so that you understand the partnership of work while God is working on you. And I think also so so that we understand that obedience matters, and also that it was gross, and He needed to clean it. Or sometimes, I think, and we said this last week, sometimes Jesus works in spectacle, and He needed people to see what was happening. All of these things are possibilities. So when the man comes back, seeing his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? There's confusion now, right? This is part of the spectacle. It's a reasonable response. Some said he was, others said no, he just looks like that man. But the beggar kept saying, No, man, it's me. I'm excited. I gotta tell you, whenever I watch those videos of the colorblind people who put on those colorblind glasses, those are just the best, aren't they? Man, it just warms your heart. It's like, it's like you know, puppies and kittens and then those colorblind glasses. That's my list <laughs> right there. Or baby anything. But, um, but, but man, they put them on and it, oh, like, their whole life changes. Can you imagine if you've been blind for 30 years since birth and all of a sudden you can see everything? He's excited. You see, when someone accepts Jesus, they are seeing the world through the eyes of God for the first time. And that means colors change. Things become more vibrant. And there is a different perspective, one that moves us from judgment to justice, from punishment to benevolence, to mercy, to compassion. And so they asked the man, they said, hey, who healed you? What happened? And I love the simplicity of his response, right? I love the simplicity of his response. It's simple. He told them the man... They called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and I can see. I love the simplicity of his response. He allowed God's work to speak for itself in his life. Are we that clear when we answer the question about what we believe? Sometimes the simple answer is best. Sometimes we don't need to gild the lily as it is said. By the way, if you don't know what that term means, and it's it's a misquote from from Shakespeare, actually. Shakespeare actually didn't say it. It's a misquote, but here's the idea. It describes a process of adorning or embellishing something that is already beautiful or already perfect. The idiom alludes to the fact that the flower of the lily is already perfect and needs no superficial embellishments to enhance it. A simple answer is sometimes the best answer. Don't embellish what God has done for you when you're telling someone about it. You don't need to because God's work in you is perfect already. And while it may not be where you want it to be, it's exactly where it's supposed to be as God is working on you. Never question God's timing, never questions God's work, never questions God's authority in your life. He is working on you. So that's how he answered them. And they go, oh, well, where is he now? And he goes, I don't know. I have no idea. Which, by the way, this leads us, and I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but you should go home and read it today, because the rest of the story is fascinating, right? They ask him, where is he now? He says, I don't know. Then they take him to the temple, and the priests are like, what happened? And he says it again, essentially. He says, well, you know, they put mud in my eye, and I went and I washed it, and now I can see. And they go, oh, this guy, Jesus, where is he? And he's like, again, I don't know where he is. And they're like, you're worthless to us. So they send him on. Then they call his parents. This guy's 30. They call his parents, and they bring him in. They're like, what's going on with your son? And they're like, we don't know, but apparently he can see. And they're like, yeah, so who did it to him? He's And then then they realized, you can tell in the text, they realized that this is not a good conversation for them to be in. So they go, hey man, ask our kid. He's of age. Just go ahead and ask him. Thank you, parents. Support your kids a little more. (laughs) Right? He goes, just go ask him again. So they bring him in again and they go, hey, who is this guy? How did he heal you? And is he a sinner? And this is what he says in John 9, 25. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. And then he messes with them. And then he goes, you seem very concerned about where Jesus is. Do you want to follow him too? (laughs) Game over. Like they're like, get out. That's essentially what they said. They're like, we don't, we don't want to have this conversation anymore. You see, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the almost not simply by healing us but by showing us that there's a third and a better way If you go through all the responses that Jesus gives in his whole time on earth, in all of the Gospels, if you go through them, they are never what is expected, what is common, or even what is reasonable most of the time. He was always searching for and always showing us a better way. The way of Jesus rarely fits into categories. Jesus is always the third way. You know, here's what's interesting in, in, in the olden times when there were stagecoaches, you could buy a first class, second class, or third class ticket, did you know that? This is what you did in a stagecoach. If you were in first class and the stagecoach broke, you got to stay inside the stagecoach. If you were in the second class, when the stagecoach broke, you had to get out and walk beside the stagecoach. If you were third class in the stagecoach and it broke, you had to get out and push here's what's interesting. The way Jesus answers all his questions is kind of a third-class way. It's always different, and he's always pushing us, pushing us for more progress, more grace, more compassion, and then actually doing it. My question to you is this. Have you fallen into the trap? Have we fallen into the trap of our own categories? Have we accepted labels that are not from God? Have we accepted categories in our lives, categories in our politics, categories in, our, in, our, in our, our professions? Have we accepted categories about people that don't come from God and then stop searching for a third way? Third way is harder, always. But God never called us to easy. Have we just accepted what the world has given us and fallen into their categories? Because if we have... We're in trouble. My question to you today is, will you look for the third way in all you do? Will you look for the Jesus way that transcends, that sometimes finds common grounds and sometimes repels both those other categories? Will you look for the third way so that you can be one of those transcendent beings? who's not stuffed into some box that somebody else defined, but gets to live their life in a way that honors Jesus and all that we do. By the way, without the third way, we would have been lost because their binary was pretty simple. Jews were saved, Gentiles were not. We're Gentiles. So by Jesus going, that's the wrong binary. See, because when you meet me, you're all my children. And when that happened, everything changed. And we are in a direct legacy of a third way thinking. So, are you going to engage in finding the third way in everything in your life? Because we've got to be third way people. The kind of people who aren't comfortable with the rhetoric that is happening in the world today, whether in the church or outside of the church. But a, a group of people that says, I want, I want, I want God's value system to be my value system. I want that to be expressed most profoundly and most powerfully. And I'm not just going to buy into the ways and the categories and the labels that everybody else has given me because life is way more nuanced than that. And human beings are way more nuanced than that. So that's my question today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for healing. Just in general, that's awesome. But also thank you for showing us a third way as you heal. The way of urgency. The way that that seeks to alleviate suffering of this man while at the same time teaching us a different way to think. Lord, we need both that healing and we need that thinking today. Can you give us both of those things? So that we can defy the categories that the world gives. And we can live in that liminal space that only you can create in the world that space in between that feels like it's uncomfortable, but it's probably the safest place to be. We ask these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.